Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. Hey, I heard you need an inspiration. He's Ilana and friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day, every little thing's gonna be a-okay. Hey everyone, new episodes of Little Known Facts drop every Monday and you can find them on your favorite podcast provider. Also, if you go to the website, littleknownfactspodcast.com, you'll find behind-the-scenes photos, videos, and interviews, and lots more on the gallery page. And if you are loving these intimate, candid conversations with all the artists who come on the show, please head over to the contributions page. I depend on these donations to continue to bring you these interviews every week. So if you love the show, please donate. Little known fact about my guest today. When his acting career was at a standstill, he decided to create his own opportunities by producing. Some of those opportunities include the films Baby It's You, Running on Empty, and with Martin Scorsese, After Hours. Welcome Griffin Dunn. A-OK. Griffin Dunn has had a career that has spanned over four decades as an actor, director, producer, and writer. As an actor, Griffin is probably best known for his starring roles in two unforgettable dark comedies that have become classics, An American Werewolf in London and Martin Scorsese's After Hours. He was a Golden Globe Award nominee for his performance in the latter. As a producer, he has produced such acclaimed films as Baby It's You, Chilly Scenes of Winter, Game 6, White Palace, After Hours, Once Around, and Running on Empty. Some of his other film roles include Quiz Show, Who's That Girl, opposite Madonna, The Big Blue, Dallas Buyers Club, and The Discoverers. He directed the films Practical Magic, Addicted to Love, Fierce People, The Accidental Husband, and Lisa Picard is Famous. Television audiences have seen him on Frasier, for which he received an Emmy Award nomination, Girls, Damages, House of Lies, and most recently for Amazon, I Love Dick. He is an Academy Award-nominated director. Welcome, Griffin Dunn. Well, you grew up in Hollywood. I think most people probably know a little bit about your family because you're sort of Hollywood royalty. I would say it's fair to say that you are someone who has been public for a long time. You grew up in sort of a social public family. Was it inevitable? Because where was the home that you grew up in? The home itself was in Beverly Hills. Uh, my aunt and uncle were screenwriters, but better known as, as novelists. Who brought your family my out west? My dad worked for Playhouse 90, and the producer of Playhouse 90, when it went off the air, uh, started his own studio. And Did he Playhouse 90 dad. do new plays for television? They were plays that were written for television, okay. all live, all on kinescope, most of them lost. Amazing. So who were some of the writers? You know, it was Rod Serling, and uh, there was, you know, Arthur Penn's first 
try at directing and Sidney Lamette and Patty Chayefsky's writing his his original plays. Incredible. So that's what brought him out there. Well, that's what brought him from New York. And then his boss at um, Playhouse 90 started his own studio in Los Angeles, a television studio called Four Star with Charles Boyer, David Niven, two other incredibly elegant men. And they were four stars and they had their own film studio. And my father came out to run production for that. And that's how we ended up in L.A. And your mom was? She was a, um, a rancher's daughter and from Nogales, Arizona. Um, but she moved to New York on her own, did the old, you know, staying at the... Um, like Barbizon or Barbizon, some... Barbizon, yeah, stayed at the yeah. Barbizon and, um, you know, tried to be a model and an actress. And you Do know, you know where up. they met? They met at a play. And uh-huh. I don't know the name of the play, but it was produced by a guy named Howard Erskine, who was my dad's best friend. And actually, she was going out with Howard, and then my dad snaked her. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Go, Dominic. Called a cock block. <laughs> and it's still called that today. And it's still called that today. It hasn't yeah. changed. So yeah. you grow up in this family, and your father's brother is John. John Gregory Dunn. Gregory Dunn, who's married to Joan Didion. Mm-hmm. And they're around when you're growing up? Oh, yeah. They Well, they came to... Um, in 63, 64. Are you no, born now in 63, 64? Uh, I wish I wasn't, but okay. I, I've been around now. Okay, so you are, you've uh, entered. Since 55. Okay. Um, but I was born in New York. I forgot that part. And when I was two, we moved to L.A. But anyway, then they came out not too long afterwards. And were you always together? Was the Dunn clan kind of a huge? Yeah, very much. I mean, all my conscious life, you know, they've they've been in it. We've had our two immediate families have always, you know, integrated my father and my brother would have their falling outs, but, you know, I would stay close with them and then they would get back together. Yeah. And, you know, it was all the usual yeah. family dramas. So it is, in fact, documented that you were a young man who left high school early because you got in trouble. Yes. It sounds like the trouble was much worse the way you yeah. euphemize it. Well, um, but I, I was smoking pot, which um, is Well, it's illegal. It's it is illegal. Don't start scolding me. <laughs> I <laughs> mean, was, and it was in a school in Colorado where pot is legal. That's crazy. Crazy. They owe you an apology and a degree. I couldn't agree more. So because of that, all roads led you to New York City. Mm-hmm. This is the beginning of your career as we know it. Okay. You are how old? I am eighteen. What happens? I go. Literally, you get off the plane. What happens? I'd love to say a bus, but that's yeah. not true. No, you're um, Griffin Dunn. You got off <laughs> You got off the Sony Jet and you, <laughs> I mean, let's not yeah. pretend. I went to the Neighborhood Playhouse. I started at the Neighborhood Playhouse and um, my first week there, it's a very much of a school environment, you know, with dance classes and voc- vocal classes and everything. Uh, my first week there, before I went to the class, I went to the A&P across the street, the uh-huh. supermarket. And I went to just get it like a few things. And I had an enormous coat. And um, one of the things was Cheese Whiz. I, I don't know. Delicious. What do you mean you don't know? If they had Triscuits, that's the best day well, ever. <laughs> so I loaded up and yeah. I realized my pockets were so big. I mm-hmm. thought, why don't I, why am I paying for this? Crazy. Look how, look at these pockets and look how few items these And are. just oddly enough, the way pot was legal in Colorado, Apparently. shoplifting is completely legal in New York. I didn't Again, realize. you were, you know, <laughs> why are you always being set up? And so, <laughs> so anyway, it caught the attention of the security guard mm-hmm. who informed the New York City police. 
And so I was arrested and led by in handcuffs in front of the neighborhood playhouse. <laughs> First year student. And they're taking the back of my head and putting it under the door. <laughs> and I've still got my big coat on. And I'm taken to, you know, the tombs. Oh, my God. And I go from cell to cell to cell, you know, waiting for night court. I was sure. there at 7 in the morning. We're now like 3 in the morning. I've earned the nomenclature, the cheese whiz kid. <laughs> the other inmates found it hilarious of course. That, she, that I took cheese whiz. Because the other inmate was like, killed seven people well, you know, on my way. <laughs> my last. Uh, son of I, Sam. That yeah, was the other guy. That was, yeah, wait. Great guy. He was so sweet. Um, Misunderstood. Absolutely. Um, he brought his own hot plate. Um, he, uh, but anyway, actually. Does anyone a have a Ritz cracker? Oh, no. Ter- uh, well, okay. I, you know, we were. I was going to go. We were all going to go to Rikers if the judge didn't get me. And Rikers, I was not looking forward to. It was all fun and games until we had to go to Rikers. And I'm in the final cell before I finally get to the judge. It's taken all day and I'm in a cell with I'm 18 these two kids are 17 the way I know that is they're reading the latest edition of the New York Post of which they're on the cover for killing a Columbia student you've got to be kidding. and they're looking at their picture I look at look at how my yeah I'm not so sure and they're like a couple of actors you know oh my complaining God. about their headshot and then the, a cop comes in and goes oh we can only take one of you that's my English, Irish accent. Okay. He wasn't uh, old, old O'Reilly. And he was, said, we can only take one of you. Uh, we'll take the youngest one here. And I said, I'm the youngest. I'm the youngest. Mm-hmm. I'm the... Well, you're the only non-murderer. And I also said, I'm Irish. I'm Irish. I'm Irish, just like you. <laughs> I'm Griffin. It's I'm Griffin. <laughs> Paddy. <laughs> How, my Teaneck Irish accent is fantastic. <laughs> so I'll take you, meaning you get to see the judge. Oh, I get to see the right, judge. That's the judge what it goes, meant. why is this in my courtroom? He brings the security guard to the bench. I'm picturing goes, Harry Anderson from like the sitcom <laughs> night court. Yeah. Like, first of all, give me that Triscuit. Bring that here, young man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Bring that cheese whiz. <laughs> it was a total sitcom. Mm-hmm. And all, instead of yelling at me, he yelled at the security guard for arresting me. That's right. And then he was shamefaced and I had to take a subway back and we were the only two on the platform at the end of You and Earl. <laughs> You're like, I'm really sorry about the cheese whiz. Yeah, really, yeah. So you don't have a record from that. I've off, I, I've wanted to look for it, but I can't find it. But I you wanted... can travel freely between countries. You're not like Roman Polanski. No, like exactly. you're allowed back. No. You're allowed I, back I, in when you leave. A, a, absolutely. I was in, uh, just sidebar, I was, I was in the JetBlue terminal in Burbank a few years ago. Lucky. And I'm going to my flight and a, a guy, you know how you can tell someone's an agent? The guy was like... That's what an agent looks like. And the guy's passing me, and I'll, we pass each other, and he goes, Roman? And I I can feel that was directed to the back of my head. Right. And I turn around, and he goes, Ro. And then he realizes his mistake, and he turns around, and I follow him. I go, did you think I was Roman Polanski? That's if I was, my daughter. If I was Roman Polanski, what would I be doing in JetBlue and yeah. Burbank? Well, you know, I wouldn't be surprised. But he, the familiarity he took, like, wrong. Right, like, right. You're back. I'm back. I'm glad you've worked out that little nonsense that happened. <laughs> That's a complicated case that yeah. lingers. Yes, it is. So neighborhood playhouse. Neighbor, then I, then, so you, then I so went you, you spent with, the day and you studied with? And then I studied with Uta Hagen afterwards. I hear she's wonderful. She is 
terrifying. It was terrifying. Was it really like that? Yeah. Do you a little reenactment? Like, was it a scene study or monologue? It was or all. What? It was. It was all scene study. So you've just done yeah. your scene. And they were all professional actors. Like I, anyone that we would oh, well, know Peter now. Peter Weller, Lindsey Krauss, Billy. Co- they're all people that were that I knew as a totally out of work actor looked up to and right. idolized. And they were all older than me and they were all like, I shouldn't have been there. And I really shouldn't have been there. Did you audition to I get auditioned in? and I did a monologue from um Catcher in the Rye. Do you remember the first line? Or I not only it? I not only do not remember the first line, when I showed up, I didn't remember the entire thing. Perfect. So I spoke in a natural voice Great. and I described like Holden my trip up to Bank Street. Um, but and it how was I got not there. But I didn't actually... say Bank Street. It was not the monologue. It right. sounded like Holden, because I can sound like him. And she said, oh, that was yummy. <laughs> yummy. Oh, we're going to have so much fun. And uh, she could tell I didn't know what the hell I was doing after three or four classes. Not so yummy. Not so yummy. And she said, listen, uh, darling. You're too young. I don't think you have the experience. I went, I went, no, please, please don't kick me out. Please, please. And she said, okay, give one more, one more try. And I just jumped ahead in the, um, in the Uta Hagen and her acting thing. And I went to the fourth wall where you break down the, and I talked on the telephone and I talked to every member of my family on the phone. You couldn't get me off the phone, but it was so. It was riveting. It was riveting to her that uh, she let me stay. And when I say she was terrifying, the worst thing that could happen is if you did a scene and she went, oh, darling, that was wonderful. Who's up next? Unless she yelled at you, unless she really let you fucking have it. And it was tough, but you knew it was like. She was working with she's, you. Yeah, she's taking you seriously. So uh, people were more, much more scared of getting the, oh, I love that, than when she really worked with you. When you, If you got her from behind the desk and up walking around all agitated about how terrible actors are in this day and age and what, you know, what the group theater was doing and how this doesn't compare, then you knew you were in, you were doing well. How did you have at such a young age, the confidence, where does that come from with you? Well, I, one, I, I I kind of thought this is just a rite of passage. I sort of knew. You understood that. I understood that, that you had to be terrified and take a lot of criticism in order to have the guts to get up on stage, face bad reviews and quiet audiences and not get your laughs or whatever actors face every every moment. So I, I understood it on that level. Were you a child actor? No, I, I actually grew up not wanting to be a part of Hollywood. I, I grew up wanting to be in New York from the moment I, from when I first saw New York at eight years old. I, I couldn't wait to grow up to come, come to New York. But I didn't want to come to be an actor because that was Hollywood and that was phony and that was, you know, so it was like a normal, I want to do something different. So your rebellion. In high school, uh, the one that kicked me out, Mm -hmm. the acting teacher really wouldn't let me not audition for Zoo Story, the Edward Albee play. He said, this is crazy that you're not doing that. You have to do it. He said, just come in and audition. And I read that monologue and I roared with laughter Mm -hmm. and I worked really hard on the monologue. And I I got the part, and there was no turning back. You liked it. I really liked it. In your childhood, was it more parties, or was there also, like, screenplay readings going on? It was a mystery because even I, as a kid, knew that the people in our house, they were all really big in the movie business. Mm -hmm. 
and they've come to the house of the host was in the television business. And at that time, those two worlds did not intersect at yeah, all. Yeah, it's not Netflix yeah, or Amazon producing. Exactly. So how did, what, why was I, that? I, well, my dad was very, he loved Hollywood. You know, as a Catholic kid in Hartford, he just, and his ambition to meet all of his idols. So he went from reading the magazine to like stepping into it. Right into it. Did you grow up Catholic also? Yeah. Altar boy Catholic? I was an or? altar boy Catholic in, in um, this boarding school I went to when I was 11 through which is in Massachusetts, and and I I was allowed to get off campus to be because we didn't have a Catholic. It was a like a Protestant kind of boarding school, so I was allowed to get off campus, which is the whole reason I became an altar boy. Uh-huh. You could stay, you know, you they actually you get a cab and go to Freedom. a real town. So I put on the vestments. Luckily, nothing bad happened, but the priest was stereotypically a total drunk. Uh huh. And the other altar boy and I would put him in his vestments and get him up and push him out of the wings and um and and we'd like make sure he got his you know when it came time to communion where the wafers were and we the, cheese him it. the cheese whiz <laughs> that would have been hilarious in I lieu wish, of a sacrament way, a wafer, cracker today <laughs> a wafer with a little cheese whiz on it Delish. i would totally go there i think we're on to something i think i'm going back to church <laughs> <laughs> that's the best communion i ever ever would have tasted or make them like Oreos, like two mm. crackers. <laughs> he licked the I'm cheese so with. <laughs> I'm so sorry. We usually serve really crunchy things during the podcast, but we're out today. So you were an altar boy. I have a hard time picturing that. Yeah. Well, I didn't say I was a good altar boy. Your mother was of Mexican descent? Yeah, my grandmother was full Mexican. Really? Mm-hmm. And they were in Arizona? Yeah, right on the border of Nogales, uh, uh, the border of Arizona, Mexico. Did you go back there as oh, a yeah, child? I mean, it was, you know, it was a sleepy little border town. Everybody knew everybody. And, you know, you would, um, and and it was great as a, a teenager because you could just walk across the border and get drinks. We would go across the border with like all our cousins and my parents and, uh, not my parents, but my mother and all of her cousins. And we'd go across to this restaurant called La Roca and... My mother knew every lyric of every mariachi song, and she'd always try to stump the mariachis, and they loved her. So when it was time to go, the house we stayed at was our cousin Eddie, was right on the border. So we would cross the border, and the mariachi band would take their instruments and follow us. And we'd go through the, you know, those little gates, those uh-huh. little uh, French fry, yeah. you know, twirling things, and they take the tubas and the Get them the through the turnstile. Get them through the turnstile. <laughs> <laughs> you called and it a French fry, but I, I did you mean what, like a curly fry? No, you know what how you French fry? Yeah, forget it. <laughs> and, um, and, and so we would then go to Eddie's house and... The kids would go to sleep, the, mech, the grown-ups would stay up, and then we'd wake up the next morning, we'd see the mariachi band would be lying around still in their cowboy hats. So you come to New York with your bags packed of your own history. Mm. You start with Uda. Somehow you make it through. Who is your Brat Pack? I was really close with the actors in the neighborhood playhouse. Uh-huh. People like Peter Weller became a really close friend of mine. Yeah, My actor friends were actual actors who were really working. As friendly as I was with them, it was very painful for me to not be working. I was working at Beefsteak Charlie. I was doing everything but but working. 86 acting. 86, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, it was like, okay, I know this is like a rite of passage to be the waiter and 
So I was like young enough to like the feeling of feeling grown up. I'm getting your own money and you earned it. Uh, absolutely. So you worked at Beefsteak Charlie's. Were there other crazy jobs that you had? Yes. Uh, my favorite was working at Radio City Music Hall. I've heard of it. Yeah. And I was a popcorn concessionaire. That's a hard job. It was very hard and a lot of responsibility. Yeah. And I moved into that position very quickly. Hmm. Uh, I was just hired to be, to sweep, to also work the counter and all that stuff. But somebody, somebody the manager, saw Somebody saw very somebody saw quickly. Some in me. <laughs> and, and I love this job because you had to get the popcorn. You, you go into the um, elevator and it would go down like, you know, beneath Radio City Music Hall, Rockefeller Center, John D. Rockefeller hated people. Uh-huh. You know, he's famous for giving a, a poor person a nickel. He didn't want to walk among people. So he had an entire underground street system, you know, and, and his own went personal for tunnels yeah. that when, would, right. So whenever he wanted to go from one building to another, he went underground. Right where he belonged. Absolutely. And so I would go underground to get more popcorn. And if it was during Christmas, I would pass the camels and because the nativity scene was going on and I would feed the camels popcorn and then, and I had like a little paper cadet cap and a Velcro zipper. Fantastic. Thing. And then I would wander over to uh, 8H where Saturday Night Live was just getting started. And I watched their rehearsals. Then I got go over. Oh, look, it's uh, coming up to the news. I'd go over and I'd see, you know, NBC News and, you know, I could wander anywhere. And yeah. nobody stopped me yeah. in my little paper hat. I don't know why. And I ended up in Because casting. none of this happened, Griffin. <laughs> none of this is real. This is a dream. What do you mean? <laughs> there was no underground tunnel. There, just go there. I'm sorry to We're sound going so after fantastical. Here. Can we go after? I just want to tell one thing. Okay. I finally almost got a job because casting is there. And Rockford Files was starting. And the part that was eventually played by Stuart Margolin, a man much older than me, I ended up in the in the casting thing, and I got an audition. With your hat? <laughs> well, I took off the hat. <laughs> and they said I was too young. But I got an audition just from being there. See? See? Listen, you got to put yourself li- out there, kids. <laughs> Listen, you young people just starting out. There's an underground tunnel system. <laughs> I swear to God, go look at it. Obviously, at some point, you decided, I'm going to make my own work. Yes, well, my two best friends were Mark Metcalf mm-hmm. and Amy Robinson. Mark Metcalf from Animal House? Yeah, very, very I good. remember him. Holy moly. And Amy Robinson had, a couple years before, a few years, maybe more, been in Main, Main Streets. She was Teresa in Main Streets. Which is pretty fancy. Pretty, quite a credit. But she was very, oh, you know, the two two other guys in that movie, Keitel and De Niro, I believe. What happened to them? They, they, they. Sad. You know, it's a man's world. Uh, they really um, overcame they had, it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they left Beastake Steak Charlie's. We were all working around the same time, and, you know, they went off. Whatever. They're fine. Whatever. Hacks. So Amy was, though, very discouraged with acting as a profession, and particularly as a, as a woman and what was open to her. And she was a, um, a great reader of The New Yorker and particularly the writer uh, Ann Beatty. And so she turned Mark and I on to it. And, and both of us, all three of us were pretty much out of work. 
And Ann Beatty's book, Chili Scenes of Winter, had just come out. I love that movie. Oh, it, and, and, the, and the book. And Joan McGlynn Silver directed it. Exactly. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Did you know her? No, and that wasn't going to happen for at least another two years. But we optioned the book with our own money. Well, actually with Mark's money because he Great. got cast in he Animal He was in House. a big movie. He, I mean, he used that money and we bought it. And we went up to see Ann Beatty. And she was in Cambridge teaching at Harvard. And we called her. Her name was in the phone book. And we said, can we come over? And we went over, and she said it was like three of her characters walked in her living room. And we stayed all day. We got a little shit-faced. And she called up, kind of slurry, called up her agent, who was this guy named Swanee, H.L. Swanson, one of the great, represented Hemingway, you know. And he was an old man. And he said, I want these kids to have the option on chilly scenes of winter. And you could hear him yelling. Right. And so he goes, I don't care, I don't care. They offered me a part. I'm going to be a waitress and to be high hairdo. So that's kind of how it started. And then we got the book to Joan. And all three of us knew John Hurd, who played um, Charles. And he committed to the movie by saying to Mark and myself and Amy, he goes, I'm going to go trolling through bars. Whoever keeps up, I'll do the movie. And I won. I bet you did. <laughs> Good for and, you. Uh, and and he and he was true to his word. He really committed. And um, and he was drunk throughout the entire well, shoot, probably. But he did a good job. He was fantastic. It doesn't matter. He was, he was fantastic. You know. So when he then appears in After Hours yeah. with you, is that did you bring him along? Yeah, we suggested him. We kind of had to sell him to Marty because Marty said, "I think this guy is incredibly talented, but yeah. you know, isn't he a little?" Uh, isn't he trouble? Isn't he? He's got, you know, he had a, you know, a brilliant, but um, his reputation preceded him. Thank you. And we said that to John, and John said, I, 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 I'm, I'm not that. I'm not that. A director like Scorsese would think that, and you know, he was amazing. Everyone was amazing in that yeah. movie. Well, before that is American Werewolf in London. Is that the first movie you got? Well, the first any movie. And um, how old were you when you did that movie? I was 24. So is that just, not that it's important, but is that before or after you put together Chilly Scenes of Winter? Oh, yes. And I had a small part in Chilly Scenes of Winter. Right. I know small, that. And that yes. small part actually, I, I started to get work in the theater. Because you're hilarious. And so well, that's sort really of. a really nice little thing. And, uh, you know, Wilfred Leach the, um, saw the movie and he went, oh, I want that guy in the Wally Shawn play. And so I ended up working at the public where I, I, I wanted to be at the public theater you know, since I first read about it, it and as a kid. It's the most and, legitimizing feeling, Yeah, with right? Joseph Papp. I mean, it was like, Incredible. I can't believe this is happening. Yeah. And this all happened pretty quickly. Once Chilly Scenes happened, things went very quickly. So from Chilly Scenes came Werewolf in London? Yeah, but not... The, not directly, never, but sort of... John never saw it yet. In fact, I didn't even audition for it. That was Did just you know his, John Landis? Not at all. I went and I met him at the St. Clement's Theater in the room. We talked for about... 15 minutes. And there was, you know, a truckload of other actors waiting to go in. And I'm waiting for the, okay, when sides, something. Do I read? He went, great to meet you. He said, all I care about is, are you claustrophobic? He said, I can't tell you anything about this movie. I can't tell you anything. I just want to know if you're claustrophobic. And of course, I figured the answer, no, was the right answer. And Did you see my special skills on my yeah, resume? Absolutely. Unclaustrophobic. Unclaustrophobic. And so I, I thought the movie was going to take place in an elevator. That's what I thought the whole drama right. was going to be. And by the time I got home, he got my home number. 
And he goes, listen, I'm sending somebody over with a script right now. Can you read it right now? He's going to stand outside your door and read it and then hand it back to him. And, you know, within 20 minutes, there was this, like, burly-looking guy holding the script. I read it. I roared with laughter. I handed it back. I said, yeah, I'd love it. He goes, great. Well, you want to know why you're supposed to be claustrophobic? I don't want you to be. And he described how, for the makeup, I don't think they do it like this anymore, but they made a a mask of actual plaster. And the only thing that's keeping you alive are these two little straws in your nose. And you're in there for, you know, 40 minutes or I don't it whatever time it is. It just, it's a long time to be in that kind of a, it's like being buried alive. And I said, oh, that's so let's, like fun. let's ask the question again. Is it true that you're not claustrophobic or did you freak out when that was happening? I breathed and I could have freaked out. I kept thinking people were leaving, leaving the room. <laughs> and while they were out, you know, it was like, let's go get a drink somewhere. Someone would cover And, and that the, the straws would fall out of my nose and they'd come back and I would be dead. And it would be like being buried alive. Did you ever ask him, like, other? were you the only one who said you weren't claustrophobic? I mean, why, why did yeah, you get right. the part? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Crazy story. You'd be story. amazed how many claustrophobic, stupid actors there are. And After Hours was after that. Oh, yeah. By? Yeah. Two years or three years or something. But what happened was after one day of shooting, he called and said, the studio told me they want, they want to reverse roles. They want you to play David and David to play Jack. I said, I, I, I don't want to do that. He goes, I don't want you to do that either. I just okay. wanted to hear it from you. He goes, I, I just want you to know. Don't worry about it. Thank I, God. Thank God. I love that part. I think had you changed roles, would everything be different from then on? I'd be so... What would life if you might... Oh maybe God. you should have switched roles. I should have switched roles. <laughs> what was I thinking? <laughs> so you've gotten to do... Everything somebody can do in this business. I mean, you've inhabited it from every aspect. Yeah, but I'm, I'm wildly greedy. You know, I kind of... Yeah, I heard that I'm, about you. Yeah. I, but I mean, I want to, I wanna, you know, there's still... I mean, I, do you... I try not to look back. I, I, if I, you know, it's all gets very... Uh, yeah. Well, first of all, don't cry. First of all, don't but, cry. It's okay. <sighs> what What is it that you still want to do? Well... You know, the things I'm working on, I'm really excited about. I'm doing this uh, documentary. I've been working on it for six years. It's about my aunt, my Aunt Joan. It's taken a lot yeah. to to get it to where it is now. And now it's really, you know, I finally got the money and I can stop paying out of pocket. Yeah, um, Joan Didion's story is remarkable yeah. on every level. I mean, I think about her impact on readers of so many generations now, some of the younger readers, I imagine, would take it for granted somewhat, kind of what a warrior she was. Yeah. So that documentary is happening. I wanted to just figure out something that I think a lot about and wanted to ask you about because because of social media, the world is just changing so mm. quickly. Privacy is no longer, whether you're creating your own lack of privacy by sharing or oversharing, mm -hmm. and that you are someone who has been in the public eye now for a really long time for all kinds of reasons, things that have happened to your family that are both incredible and that are both devastating. Whether it was a group decision or led by your father, very public about how they felt about things. What do you think about privacy, and what is fame to you? Moving to New York as a kid, all of that was 
to actually get privacy, to leave, you know, where I was from, which was, you know, somebody's son of parents who basically just knew everybody. Mm-hmm. So if they knew everybody, then everybody A lot knew of them. On they you. would they would, you know, say, Oh, that's that's that guy's kid. So it was really important to me to like come here and make my own identity, which is why I think so many people come to New York. I wanted to build up and do do my own thing. And my you know, my my father, outside of this small social world of Hollywood parties, was not in any way well known. Mm-hmm. You know, in fact, he. Uh, um, so, as I became kind of um, an actor and uh, became public and doing movies and press and all that kind of stuff, that was, you know, my dad was living in Oregon, broke and teaching himself how to write and being very proud of me from beyond, you know. And when he came to New York, you know, it was like, oh, that's Griffin's dad. And, you know, John and Joan and my dad, and they all moved east. I, you know. You start, you were the trailblazer. I start, I'm the first one to come back Well, here. you came in that covered wagon. I came and here and I fought east. a lot of Indians to get here. And <laughs> you did I ate hardtack. Good for you. And, uh, you and know. And cheese whiz. Actually, I uh, overcame sneak bits and, um, you have the silentest laugh I've ever heard. That's my podcast laugh. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> my real laugh is so loud yeah, that you I would thought. have to take your headphones off. You've been well-known for a long time now. Do you like being famous? You know, I don't mind it. I like, you know, I love when somebody comes up and says they like me. I mean, I know people who are famous. Who's the I most famous person that you slept with? <laughs> okay. In all seriousness, who are, who do you think is the most famous person that you know or knew? Did you know President Kennedy and Jacqueline Onassis? Did you know them? I love her. Of I course her you so do. Much. Of course you do. And I like Jack, too. I used to write him letters, quite honestly. Tell me. I had a correspondence with when I was when he was president, just president. I, I, I really, truly worshipped the two of them. And I was, uh, you know, seven years old and I was in first grade. And so I started writing him letters, like personal letters, you know, like, you know, my birthday's coming up and, you know, I can't stand this kid, Toby, and, uh, you know, just like blah, blah. And I would hear back from um, Mrs. Lincoln, who was his secretary, going, oh, the president really loved your letter. And when John John was born, this is the kind of ass kisser I am. Yeah. I made him a paddle to spank him. What what was I thinking? <laughs> I, I often want to go to the Kennedy Library to and see if my was paddle there. was there. And and I painted it and I worked on it really hard so when he's bad that the president can spank John John. <laughs> With the paddle With that Griffin the, does. That I know? gave. Yeah. With these hands. And <laughs> you whittled it. And uh my parents went to church every Sunday. And one Sunday, for no reason, just no reason, I said, I'm not going. I just put down my foot and and my dad was so angry. And he said, I can just get in the car. And he took the other two kids and they went to church. And I, I just spent, you know, the next hour or so doing nothing. And they came running in after church, my brother and sister. I went, oh, my God, we met the Kennedys. We met the Kennedys. And Jack and Jackie were sat in the pew in front of them. Because you had told them that was your church and Jack wanted to meet the man, the young man. Well, I, I, I cannot believe that happened. I, I, that's the saddest. Hate God. That's when I, you left the Catholic church. Well, in my heart, I did. So being a little boy, 
I went to school and I told everybody I met the Kennedys. Sure. That's what little boys do. They lie. And the lie grew and grew and grew. I even made adjustments for it as I understood what the Secret Service role mm-hmm. was. Uh, there was the time where I tapped the president and go, Hi, sorry, turn the Right. I'm sorry to interrupt. I'm, I'm Griffin Dunn. I'm the guy who wrote about it. He goes, oh, my God, Jackie, this is a little boy. He goes, how did that birthday turn out? That I didn't like the sound of that Bobo kid. And um, and he goes, Shh, let's talk after the church. After yes. The yes, after the sacrament. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, so anyway, I'm telling this story. Shamefully, I'm like 18. And I'm telling the kids at the neighborhood playhouse. And, I, and we, it was our first day. We're all in a coffee shop. And I get about... Four sentences into it, and I said, I, I can't do this. I got, I, I'm lying. I'm lying. I'm telling a lie. I never met the president. I never, I didn't even get that far. Right. Went, okay, calm down. You didn't meet right. the president. I called my brother that night, and I went, the most amazing thing happened. You know, I've always lied about this because you guys did it, and I had to make it my own. He goes, What are you talking about? He goes, When you guys and the president was there, and he goes, We didn't meet the president. I go, What? Of course you did. He goes, No, dad was so angry at you. Oh my God. He, oh my God. he said, tell, I want you to tell he Griffin he met the up. president. That's amazing. It's a lie and a lie and That's a lie and a lie. amazing. Well, there you have it. That's just life, isn't it? It's true. It's just a lie <laughs> on a lie on a lie on a lie. Wow. Well, I cannot thank you enough I for can. being here today. You're very welcome. This was absolutely riveting. <laughs> I have been such a great admirer of yours thank for you. so long. From the moment I met you, you have remained one of the most charming, inspiring, joyful, ambitious, passionate people that I know. And I say ambitious in the best way. I, because I, I never thought that was a swear You word. make amazing stories come to life, both as a person telling stories and in the work that you create. This podcast has been all about celebrating the people I think are the most important artists of my generation. And when I tell you that I consider you one and that I also get to call you friend Mm. is a great, great pleasure in my life. So Mm. thank you for being here. Thank you, Alana. This is really fun. All right. Well, I hope you come back. Okay, I will. Clouds can make the wind blow. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. If you want more information about my guests, go to the website, littleknownfactspodcast.com. I also wanted to tell you that there is now a new addition to the website. It is a button that says contributions. This podcast is a true labor of love, and I really, really want to keep doing it for a long time. So if you like listening as much as I love to do it, please feel free to contribute. It would mean the world to me. Also, on Twitter, you can find me at Alana Levine. Instagram is Little Known Facts Podcast. And on Facebook, Little Known Facts Podcast. You can also feel free to rate and review the show on the iTunes show page. This podcast is recorded at Hangar Studios in New York City. This episode was brought to you by Pro Media, located in Times Square. Pro Media offers both production and post production services out of its beautiful studios in the heart of New York City. Pro Media Sound Vision. Find out more at promedia.nyc. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. 
In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.